Coming up on this week's show, it's another listener favorite episode, and this time we're shining the spotlight on author Lucy Lennox. This is the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. Each week, we bring you exclusive author interviews, book recommendations, and explore the latest in gay pop culture. Welcome to episode 257 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Jeff Adams, and with me, as always, is my co-host and husband, Will Knaus. Hello, everyone. Happy anniversary, Mr. Husband. Oh, thank you. This episode of the podcast is brought to you in part by our remarkable community on Patreon. We'll have more information on how you can join the community at the end of the show, along with a sneak peek of what we have coming up for you next week. Hello, Rainbow Romance readers. Welcome back. As we record this episode, it is the Labor Day holiday weekend here in the U.S. We hope that you have had a safe and sane weekend. Practice responsible social distancing. It also just happens to be the anniversary of Jeff and myself's commitment ceremony. We said our I do's for the first time untold years ago. How many years has it been? 23. I actually did the math a couple <laughs> a couple days ago myself to figure that out. 23. Long, it's a long time and a wonderful time. It has been a very wonderful time indeed. Let's do at least 23 more, okay? Yep, sounds good. <laughs> couple bits of news before we get into our listener favorite for this week. Out of Body, which is a movie from our friends Jason T. Gaffney and Suzanne Brockman, is actually having its world premiere this coming Friday as the opening selection for Cinema Diverse, which is the Palm Springs LGBTQ Film Festival. If you're in Palm Springs, you can actually go to a drive-in screening of this. There will be drive-in screenings all week as part of the film festival, which sounds like the bestest way to see a movie. I mean, especially right now, because you don't want to be crammed up in a theater. But I mean, a drive-in is so cool and nostalgic anyway. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. But if you're not in Palm Springs... Cinema Diverse is actually going streaming this year as well. You can pick up streaming passes to see any number of the films that they have. And they've got a wide selection of documentaries, feature films, short film packages. We bought it six passes for streaming so we can be enjoying some movies from this, including Out of Body. I've got a link in the show notes so you can hop over to the Cinema Diverse site. It's a really ungangly URL, so I'm not going to try and give it to you here. And if you want more information on Out of Body, you can actually catch Jason T. Gaffney along with with his co-star Kevin Hell talking about the movie in episode 180 of this very podcast. Congratulations to Jason and Kevin. We are so glad that this story is finally getting in front of audiences. Yes, uh, you read the book. You loved the book. So it's really exciting that the, that the movie is finally headed out to audiences. We also want to let you know that our friend Joyfully Jay is kicking off the Reader Challenge Month this very day. As usual, there is a ton of fun opportunities to win prizes. I've seen the prize list. Oh my God, there's so much up for grabs this year. Reading Challenge Month kicks off with self-published book week running through Friday, September 11th. I've got a book in the prize package for this particular week, so you might get to pick up your choice out of my backlist. The other weeks that are happening this year are the New to Me Author Week, which is always popular, Past and Future Week, and the TBR Pile Week. I hope nobody's being buried under their TBR like I am. <laughs> Maybe this would be a good opportunity to get some of that burned down and yeah. read. Get to reading. Get to reading, folks. There are so many prizes you really don't want to miss out. All the details are at joyfullyj.com, as well as, of course, we've got links in the show notes as well. So do check that out through the month of September. Read some books, win some prizes. It's hard to beat that. Now for our second listener favorite episode. 
we had votes for Lucy Lennox. As we went back through the shows looking at the material we had for Lucy, I think Lucy might be one of the most reviewed authors we've had on this show. We don't keep good track of what we review, but we found 11 books by Lucy that have been reviewed on this show. And I'm not 100% convinced we actually found all of them. (laughs) You know, she is a perennial favorite. She climbs higher and higher up on the charts. In fact, Nautical, which is the most recent book in the Wild series, actually cracked the top 20 in the entirety of the Amazon bookstore, which is just incredible. So we're going to give you four reviews of our very favorite books out of the Wild series. So you're going to hear about Felix and the Prince, Hudson's Luck, Wild Love, and King Me. We want to talk about Felix and the Prince. This is the second book in Lucy Lennox's brand new series. As you can tell from the title, Felix and the Prince is an undercover prince story. So if that is your particular Reader Catnip, we both highly recommend this story. It's oh yeah, freaking awesome. And even even if secret prince stories aren't your thing, uh, still you know check this book out. It's really damn good. We listened to this book in its entirety on our trips back and forth to Sacramento when we were doing some house hunting. Uh, a quick shout out to Michael Pauly, who read this particular book. He's a remarkable talent and uh, did a terrific job on this particular book. So really quickly, we want to cover what uh, Felix and the Prince is all about. It's about a nice guy named Felix. He is working on his dissertation about stained glass, which seems like Utterly random and out of nowhere, but he is really passionate about stained glass. So what he does is he goes to this legendary castle, Gadley Castle. It's famous for its stained glass. It's sort of like out there in the middle of nowhere. So he goes to this castle to specifically study its stained glass. And he ends up sharing his time there with a prickly representative of the government, a guy named Lior. And of course, they kind of, they butt heads at first, but then they end up butting other things. Well done. <laughs> Sorry, that was really, really bad. Uh, of course, they sort of start out as an enemies to lovers scenario, but once they spend a little more time together, they realize there's something more there, and they, of course, are really into one another. And then, um, doing an uh, unfortunate breach in security protocol, Felix finds out that Lior is not just a representative of the government. He is the soon-to-be king of Monaco. He is the government. <laughs> <laughs> and things go a little bonkers from there. This book is really exceptional. The the sort of discovery that Lior is a prince is really only actually the halfway point of the book. There's like a whole lot of other um, complications that go on. Mm-hmm. Things that deal with each of their you know, background, whether Lior is actually going to accept, because of a, a family scandal, he's being forced into the throne. And there's a question if he even really wants to do that and whether he wants to be an out and proud king of country. Also, there's the problem that Felix has with... Um, a perfectly legitimate reason for being skittish, being in the public eye, and what, you know, dating a king, <laughs> what that might entail. So there's a lot of stuff for them to work through. And I think what this particular book does is it takes two 
essentially normal people, even though one of them is a prince. They're two very real, genuine people, and it throws them into a really strange, over-the-top situation. But I think what the book excels is that, is that we understand their journey mm-hmm. and how they explore the difficulties on their path to true love. Absolutely. What I love so much about this book is how we get each of their backstories mm-hmm. told really well and not info dumpy. It just naturally, organically kind of plays its way out as it would in any relationship. And also both characters really grow. Yes. Felix is, you know, very much the scholarly, wants to be in the corner sort of of person. And Felix draws him out. And as they get to know each other, Felix draws Leo out and helps him discover, I think, really who who he can be as a king. Mm-hmm. And how he could be true to himself and be a king at the same time. I, I loved everything about this book. One of the best I've read in 2018, for sure. And 2018 is only like six weeks in. But, <laughs> you know, going even further back, the way that yeah. Lucy has built this book, it's just... It's an extraordinary romance, and yet for as long as it is and as many stories as it has, it comes all back to that very heart-filled, this could be a Hallmark movie in a lot of ways with the secret prince and the the commoner, if you will, who falls for the prince and then finds a way to be with the prince. It just, it hit every button of something that I like mm-hmm. uh, in that kind of just feel good, you know it's all going to work out in the end kind of way. And Good job, Lucy! Make more like this. Exceptional job. I read the fourth book in the Forever Wild series called Hudson's Luck. And this is about Hudson. He is a financial analyst, essentially, at the beginning of the story, heads to Ireland. And he is sort of assessing a local brew pub for acquisition by his boss, Charlie is part of the family that runs the pub and the brewery there in Ireland. He's a absolutely gorgeous, feisty redhead, and Hudson immediately notices him for reasons that he's not quite sure of at the beginning. He ends up getting drunk that very first night in the pub and kind of making a fool of himself before he realizes the next day that Charlie is a member of this family and Charlie is sort of tasked with showing Hudson around the the brewery and kind of showing him the ins and the outs of the family business. And over the course of the few days that he's there in Ireland, they get to know one another. And before, before Hudson leaves, they end up hooking up. Now, up until this point, Hudson has never really even considered anything with another man. Fast forward a little bit to the States. Hudson's boss is interested in acquiring this brewery, but instead of buying out the entire thing, Hudson convinces his boss to get a franchise started in the States. Mm -hmm. Instead of buying the company outright Mm -hmm. uh, and leaving the, the family with nothing left, I should, I'm so sorry, I should have mentioned that the the family business has sort of fallen on some hard times and they needed an influx of cash, mm-hmm. which is why Hudson was there. 
But instead of just buying the whole thing, they're going to start up this brew pub in the middle of Hobie, Texas, kind of the middle of nowhere. (laughs) So once that decision is made, Charlie comes to the States. He's going to oversee the the building of the pub and sort of making sure that it is authentic to the family brand. Mm -hmm. So he stays at the Wild Family Ranch. And of course, they strike up their relationship once again and kind of try to get to the heart of what it is that they have together. Hudson is sort of not really standoffish, but he's very hesitant at first because they are essentially in a business relationship. They're working very closely together to get the brew pub off the ground. And of course, it's not a fantastic idea to be sleeping with someone you're working with 24-7. Uh, but they end up doing it anyway. <laughs> what I thought was really interesting about this particular book is the pace and the story was very relaxed. Because the story takes place over several months, what we end up getting is several very short chapters that are just sort of glimpses, little snapshots into the moments that Charlie and Hudson share. So it's not like there's no real ticking clock element or uh, a whole lot of high drama that sort of featured in the other Forever Wild books. It's a very slow build. It's actually very sweet, despite the fact that the sex is also, you know, super duper hot, as always, (laughs) in a Lucy Lennox book. She is really good at that. (laughs) It's a, a very sexy book, of course. Eventually, Hudson and Charlie know that Charlie's gonna have to go back to his family in Ireland, and Hudson is up for a big promotion if he gets this pub and business successfully launched. Uh, A family emergency takes Charlie back to his home country, forcing Hudson to board another transatlantic flight, which he hates flying. Uh, Yeah, transatlantic (laughs) flight to eventually declare his love. I really like this book an awful lot. It's a little, I felt the tone was a little bit sweeter than some of the other wild books. That being said, Jeff and I have recommended each book in this series wholeheartedly, and I recommend Hudson's Luck most definitely. This past week, Jeff and I both read Lucy Lennox's Wild Love. Now, Liam Wilde and Weston Marion, or as they're more commonly referred to, Doc and Grandpa, they've been background characters and a grounding presence in each of the stories in Lucy Lennox's Wild series, and their grandchildren have found love in each of the books so far, But in Wild Love, we finally get the story behind Doc and Grandpa's decades-long affair. Serving together in Vietnam, their respect and their friendship is literally forged in battle. And after the war, Liam returns to Hobie, Texas to his wife and children. And when Weston retires from the service, it's with Doc and the Wild family on their ranch that he sort of reintegrates into civilian life. Weston becomes an indispensable part of the family, but when tragedy unexpectedly strikes, they depend on one another and eventually realize that the devotion that they share goes far beyond friendship. It's actually love. I don't have enough adjectives about (laughs) this book. In a year so far that has been so chock full of amazing reads, I feel like 2019 has been one of the best read years 
maybe ever for so many books. This book shot to the top of my list. It's on like my all-time favorites, and there's so many reasons why. I mean, we've watched Doc and Grandpa for so long in the wild books. Now, from the get-go, I wanted to know these guys' story, and Lucy's done such an amazing job of taking us back in time. And we say this a lot, like, romance always ends with that happy, and you so know the happy that Doc and Grandpa have because of the other books. But to go back and see how it started, to see how their friendship forged in Vietnam, the Vietnam scenes were incredible. I can't imagine the amount of research that Lucy did to make you feel like you were in the trenches with them. And then to move forward and see them come back home and the delicate way that she handled almost the love triangle between Doc and Grandpa and, and Liam's wife and her acceptance of what their friendship was. And I, I, I think she knew what was actually going on there. Um, and how deep that friendship actually ran. And it never felt weird or odd. I had a hard time just not weeping in happiness for these men throughout the entire story. It was just remarkable to me. Now, aside from the fact that Lucy always delivers the emotional punch oh, yeah. with her books, um, and this one is certainly no exception, do you think that the strong feelings that readers have towards... Doc and Grandpa, not that it like colored your interpretation of the story, but do you think there was already a built-in backlog of emotion? I, I know I personally felt very strongly about these two characters before we even got to this particular story. And I think what this book does is it not only like fills in their backstory, it sort of illuminates what we have sort of felt and inferred before. These are two very strong, very capable, very, they're, they're good down to their very core. Mm -hmm. And this book kind of colors in what we've felt and sort of... It, it fills in all the blanks that have, we've seen in the previous books. Yeah. Because we know that they're fiercely devoted to their children and their grandchildren. They are fiercely devoted to fighting for what's right and making things good even in the face of whatever the crisis is. And this fills all that in. You know how these two became the men that they are, mm -hmm. both as a couple and even separately because you get so much backstory on these two and what they were before they became Doc and Grandpa mm -hmm. or even before they became friends. Mm -hmm. I think that definitely colors it, but in the best way possible. Yeah. I can't think of any other book series that I've seen where somebody's taken characters and gone backwards. There's always, I want to give these two a story and give these two a story. But here you had an established story and you went backwards. And you still made me 100% invested. I know what their end game was down you know, to the very current day. And I'm still like, oh, what are they going to do? Oh, my God, this is so bad. What's mm -hmm. going to happen now? Ah. Got me all that angstiness, even though I knew. And it's just, it just made me so happy. Mm -hmm. It really did. And yeah, I don't think Lucy Lennox can do wrong by me ever. <laughs> <laughs> but this one in particular, I mean, this is what I'm going to have to get her to sign at GRL. Oh, yeah. And put it up on my shelf of all time great reads. Yeah. And we got to give a shout out to Michael Pauly, too. Michael always does a great job 
with Lucy's books. But the epilogue to Wild Love brings together, I think, every single character from the Wild and Marion universe. And he has to do all of them in that scene. And he does an outstanding job. So if you are looking for an emotional and satisfying either ebook or audiobook listen, we highly recommend Wild Love by Lucy Lennox. King Me picks up right where Wild Love left off. Someone is barged into Doc and Grandpa's wedding weekend to take Kingston Wild away. His family has no idea that King is a world-renowned art thief, a career he's been working to end after getting burned by his boyfriend and partner in crime. It's Dirk Falcon who's come for King. Falcon's an agent who let the most notorious art thief get away, who just happens to be King. And now he needs King's help to recover a priceless artifact and avert an international incident. Now, as you can imagine, these guys don't trust each other at all. But off they go around the world with stops in Greece and Hungary. All the great moments of a heist book are here. Planning the ops, planning the distractions, dealing with what goes wrong, because of course things must, must, must go wrong at least once. It's all brilliantly woven together with some incredible plot twists sprinkled in along the way to keep you guessing, just like you want to be in a book like this. Now, as usual, Lucy creates great characters, and King is unlike any of the wilds we've met so far. Yes, he's got his artistic side, which kind of lines him up with Felix, but King's a thief, and that doesn't at all fit the wild profile. He's had an interesting path to the point where we meet him in this book. He's working to get out of the life, but the baggage and history crops up at every turn. In the same way that I wanted a Doc and Grandpa book, I would love to see King's past and how he got involved with his original boyfriend, that guy who ultimately became his crime mentor. And then there's Falcon. He, he doesn't know if he can trust King, and yet he has to. It only gets worse for him when he realizes he's falling for King because Falcon's got to deal with the rest of his team and his bosses and a ton of other stuff going on with the mission that I really can't tell you about because it would be spoilerly and I'm not going to do that. Lucy does a great job with the heist. It's very cinematic read as King and Falcon and the team figure out their plan and work to pull it off and going through all of the crazy to get this missing artifact back where it belongs. Lucy doesn't make it easy for these guys right down to the very end. And she kept me guessing exactly how long, how it was all going to turn out. I really love how Lucy explores different subgenres and tropes with these wild books too. We've had a bit of romantic suspense before with his saint, which really used the bodyguard trope beautifully. And now we've got this heist book and I would love to see more in this vein from her. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed this one an awful lot, which surprises nobody. But what was really lovely is I thought the the way Lucy played with the trust issues, something that's usually, you know, inherently baked into romantic suspense, because there's, you know, action and subterfuge and all that sort of stuff that comes with this particular subgenre. I really enjoyed how our two heroes played off one another and constantly kept each other guessing, constantly turning each other on by the slightest little thing. It was all very wonderful and amusing and sexy and a lot of fun. Jeff briefly mentioned Falcon's team that he assembles in order to, you know, undertake this op with King. Really interesting, fun, 
well-drawn characters. They're not just, you know, paper dolls that, you know, move around the suspense plot. They're, they're an integral part of the story, and they really sort of set up and help... <laughs> <laughs> our two heroes the romance that's blooming between the two of them inconveniently while they're you know sneaking into houses and trying to steal art steal art or and, steal art back and, and disable security systems and all sorts of crazy high-tech stuff so yeah i really really enjoyed this one an awful lot yeah i'll, I'll say too on the team i i really liked the they very much had distinct individual personalities and i i can't remember the kid's name but the one who was the nerdy kind of computer operator guy he had so many little ticks and issues not only did i just want to wrap him up in a hug occasionally but i also really want to see his book <laughs> i don't know how lucy pulls that off since he's not a wild and he doesn't really connect to any of the other wilds but if you could maybe make a series here lucy on its own a spinoff I would totally be into that. And I also say it, I liked how she integrated the other wilds into this story because you wouldn't necessarily think that you could do that with the type of story that this is. But in true Lucy form, even once King and, and, and Falcon get off out of Texas, the other wilds work their way back into the story. And it's just awesome. <laughs> yeah, we both really enjoyed Lucy Lennox's King Me. We highly recommend it. And of course, if you're interested in learning more about the books or anything else we've talked about on this week's show, all you have to do is go to the show notes page for episode 257 at BigGateFictionPodcast.com. Hey there, this is Will. Did you know that not only do Jeff and I love to talk about gay romance every week here on the show, but we've also written one together too? It's true. The Hockey Player's Heart is the story of an NHL all-star who returns to his hometown and unexpectedly runs into the guy who he was head over heels for in high school. He didn't have the guts back then to tell him how he felt. Now he isn't going to let this opportunity slip through his fingers. But how can it ever work between a pro hockey player and a sweet small town guy afraid to give love a chance? The Hockey Player's Heart is available on Amazon in both print and ebook formats and can be read for free with your Kindle Unlimited subscription. This story is very special to us. It's filled with small town charm and two nice guy heroes with hearts of gold working hard to find their happily ever after. We hope that you'll give it a try. And now, back to the podcast. In the past five years, we've talked to Lucy Lennox several times. And the first segment we're going to listen to is from a discussion we had with her from February 19th, 2018, from episode 124. So, Lucy, Jeff and I recently finished Felix and the Prince, loved it to pieces. And we wanted to talk to you a few minutes about sort of the origin of this particular series, you had an incredibly successful series that you wrapped up not too long ago. What made you jump into this particular setting and sort of family of characters? That's a really good question. I actually, when the Marion, I, I don't, I don't say that the Maid Marian series is really over um, because there are a lot of things that I still want to do with it. But obviously we ran through the brothers that were available, our six brothers that were available. And so after that, I actually had lots of different ideas for our new series that were based on. One was based on a group of friends from college who started a technology company together and the technology company hit it big and where all of them ended up and their stories. And I couldn't quite get that where I wanted it. I started a couple of books in that series and I just, it wasn't feeling right. 
And then I thought I was going to write a bodyguard series and I started that and that wasn't quite working right. So I started thinking about, okay, if you take away, if you try and get back into that mindset that you were in before you ever published your first book of writing just for you, writing the book that you want to write, regardless of what the market wants, regardless of what judgment you might get, what would you really want to write? And I wanted to write another family. The problem is you get judged when you write a family full of gay men because it's unrealistic. I mean, it is unrealistic. And I put that in the beginning of the first book of the series. It's like, this is dedicated to all of you who are willing to put up with me for doing this because I know it's unrealistic. But what if it wasn't? You know, what if, what if, you know, the heteronormative world allows us to have these default huge families full of really interesting characters? And it's not fair that we don't also get those big families full of characters, you know, in the LGBT community. So it's that, so it was a wish of mine, you know, to be able to explore that some more. And I loved that family aspect of the Maid Marian series. And I wanted to capture some of that magic again, but I wanted to do it in a little bit of a different way. So having said that, obviously I didn't do it in a complete vacuum of not having feedback from my first series because so much of what people loved about Made Marion series was the family, the large family, the silliness that comes from a large crazy family, but also a lot of people loved the old ladies, you know, the silly old lady trio. And I never really intended for them to be such a big part of the series. And I never really intended them to be quite so raunchy. But, you know, some characters just do what they want to do, regardless of what the author plans. So I didn't really want to have that same thing. You know, I didn't want to take a, try and recreate the Aunt Tilly trio in the new series. But I did want to explore some of the more serious reactions that came out of having that group, especially Granny and Irene, who were, you know, a senior citizen couple, a gay couple, who were, I, I found it fascinating to, and I'm going to come back around to my point here in a minute, but I found it fascinating that um, thinking about when you look at the, the long lifespan of a gay couple by the time they get to the ages that we're talking about and how many different periods in our time, in our culture's time they've lived through I mean, obviously you have the AIDS epidemic you have for, for grandpa and doc who I've introduced in this new series, it, it goes back to, they were born in the forties. No, they were born in the thirties and forties. And so there's so much history, so much of how they live their life in regards to their sexuality has had to change over all of these decades as our culture has changed, as our government has changed, as the country's perceptions have changed. And I I realized that I wanted to explore that a little bit more. So not the humor side of having this older couple who's gay, but the, the emotional side of it, the challenges, the, the coming to terms with how society is shifting, even though the two of you have been in your relationship for a long time. So having said that, when I started this new series, this patriarch couple sort of appeared with grandpa and doc. And I realized that I have, a huge family, but grandpa and doc are at the top of it. And so I'm really looking forward to writing their story story as well. So they take a big role in each of the books in terms of being sort of the mentor to this younger generation, not only 
showing them the, the, the courage to live out loud, the courage to be with who you want to be with, but also that steadfast, committed relationship that some of some of the wild kids don't have that, like Felix specifically didn't have parents who were married and committed, but he ended up getting raised by Doc and Grandpa who were that very sort of traditional, I mean, you know, Grandpa was a rancher and Doc was a doctor and they live in a small town and they lived on their ranch and in a farmhouse and with a big kitchen and family dinner and making chili and all of these things. So that's kind of what I wanted to explore. So having said that, though, I love tropes. I'm a super tropey reader. I love uh, seeing, you could just see, the book I always use as an an example is a book called On the Island, I think, and it's an MF contemporary romance was stranded on a deserted island. Okay. And there's an age difference, which is not usually my thing, but in that one. And so I read it a few years ago and I remember talking to my sister, who's also an author about it at the time. And she said, yeah, give me any stranded on a deserted island. One click. I don't need to read the blurb. I don't need to know about the characters. You just tell me there's a couple stranded on a deserted island and I want it. Will's all about forced proximity. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And enemies to lovers, like you name it. Like for me, stranded in a cabin in Alaska was a big one for me. An airplane crash would also be a big, which I've tried. I've started one of those. They're harder than they look um, to write. But The Martian also, which I posted about recently. I love The Martian, the book and the movie. And my sister and I were like, you could write 10 more Martians with different versions of Mark Watley's challenges and we'd read it. So I'm really drawn to those. And so that's where Felix's book came from, the royal, because the MF contemporary romance can go to town on a royal, hidden royal stories. You you know, oh, I've always wanted my prince, but we don't have a ton of that in, in gay romance at all yet. I mean, there are definitely some. So I decided sort of midway through last year, I definitely wanted to write a royal story and I wrote it. And right before it came out, of course, the Prince Harry and Meghan um, Merkel got engaged. So that was great timing for me because it brought, you know, got everybody excited about it again. And I know that Riley Hart and is it Riley and Christina together have a Prince? I hope I'm not getting that wrong. Have a Prince book coming out. And I know there are a couple of other people. So it's 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 going to be really exciting because they're they're evergreen tropes. I mean, it's we're always going to love those stories. But right now, it's particularly exciting, I think. So that's how I decided to write the royal romance. And then Facing West, the first book in the series, I knew from Maid Marian, of all of the side characters that came out of Maid Marian, the one I, I wanted to tell his story was Nico, Griff's best friend from Grounding Griffin. And I didn't know what his story was. But when I started thinking about why he ended up on the streets, which is how he met Griff, I had to figure out how he ended up on the streets. And that's where I sort of went into his story. So it's not really, I mean, I guess you could consider it a spinoff, the Forever Wild series of the Maid Marian series, but you don't have to have read Maid Marian at all. And I try and write each book so that you don't have to have read any of the previous books. I'm so excited you said you're going to write the the story of of Grandpa and Doc at some point because I'm interested in where that is. And I don't think we see that a lot in gay mm-hmm. romance where you'd get the story of how these two men now who are, who are, you know, senior citizens started. So I, I can't mm-hmm. wait to see that. 
Well, I'm really excited. I know what the story is in my head and I'm really excited to write it because I've, I've, I've had several readers email me speculating, or I've even had a reader emailing saying, this can't be right. You know, someone's like, they can't have these children like that. That just wouldn't. And I'm like, you don't, you don't know yet. Just give me some time to tell their story. And then you'll learn how this all came to be with this family. That story is going to take some work on my part. I think one of the challenges for me to write grandpa and dog story is that my voice is very, I don't know what the right word is, colloquial or slang. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big F-bomb dropper. I used a lot of just, you know, current language in my voice. And I, that's not going to play if you're, you know, writing a story that's taking place in the sixties or fifties or seventies and these different eras and doc and grandpa's past. So that's, it's definitely going to be a labor of love for me to get that story out and make sure that it's right before I release it. But I'm really excited. And I get asked about it all the time. I'm, I'm kind of curious about the setting for Felix and the Prince. The first book in the wild series is essentially small town romance for the most part. But then Felix and the Prince is set on, you know, the other side of the world in this castle in the middle of nowhere. And then they're surrounded by stained glass. <laughs> it's almost like a gothic fairy tale that they're like living right in the middle of. So I was wondering if, if what were your thoughts about setting two books in the same series in two incredibly different places? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question because when I started the Forever Wild series, I really thought that it was going to be set in this small town for the most part. Some of the siblings live in Dallas, and so I knew that if I wanted a more urban, you know, which if you know, like for instance, if I wanted to write the CEO and his assistant type setup, that might need to be something that happened in a bigger city. So I had Dallas there for that, you know, Hobie's close enough, but when you write a hidden royal story, you either have to have the royal come, which we've read plenty and seen movies where the royal comes and you don't recognize them and they're in this tiny town. And But when Felix sort of revealed himself to me as a character at the end of Facing West, he was this shy academic sitting in the corner of Doc and Grandpa's kitchen. And, and he, the character that I wanted to pit against a prince would be to, to create the conflict as a character who couldn't be in view of the paparazzi for some reason, because the prince is all paparazzi. And so in order to keep them apart, I needed a reason why. Otherwise, you fall in love with the prince and you live happily ever after. Yay! Nobody wants to read that book. So I needed it to be somebody who was like, I can't do that. I, I love you to death, but I can't live in view of the paparazzi. And so what would cause him to be that way? Number one, he's super shy. He's an academic. But then we find out that his mother is this sort of selfish megastar who abandoned him to pursue her Hollywood career and sort of trots him out whenever she has a movie release because it makes her seem a little bit more approachable to the media maybe. And so... So that's when I realized that, wow, if he is in the process of running away, actively running away from the paparazzi when he meets the prince, that sets up that conflict because he's hiding in his in a real world version of one of his textbooks and by going to that castle in pursuit of the stained glass knowledge. 
And, and so he can have this little temporary fairy tale while he's there, but then what happens? And obviously there's so many issues involved in the idea of a gay king that, you know, I, I could have written a whole nother book more about much more about that. But again, those are some of the decisions that you have to make along the way when you remind yourself, okay, I'm not writing a treatise about gay royalty. I'm writing a romance novel. And this story is about these two people. And, but yeah, I mean, the stained glass thing, I can't even remember where that, I wanted him to be super geeky, something really archaic almost that like, that not only was his nose in a textbook, but they were dusty old textbooks, like not, not on a computer, but that he was like in, in a cubicle in the back of some ancient library studying something archaic. And for some reason, stained glass came, came up in my head. And that's when I thought, okay, that's the perfect combination to get him to a castle. And then the other thing to answer your question is when you think about writing a tropey romance, you've got to deliver on the promise of that trope. So you have a royal romance. Well, there's certain scenes you want to see in a royal romance. You want to see them having to learn etiquette. And I, I didn't quite get as much of that in there as I wanted. You want to see the coronation or the big ball especially if in a gay romance, how, how are you going to have that big ball moment where they can't dance together in front of everybody? But that's another big scene, you know, the promise and the, the makeover scene. That's another, you know, where the prince, the princess gets, you know, the everyday girl gets fitted for the gown, you know? And so to do that in this kind of story, there's certain scenes you want to see. And to me, a hidden room in a castle was one of those scenes. So, of course, the next question I'm going to ask is, when is the next Wild Book coming out? <laughs> Good question. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Body and Soul. My next release with Sloan Kennedy comes out very soon. The official release date is Tuesday, but we may push the button a little early because we have the anthology coming out on Wednesday also. And then I have already started writing Otto's story. Otto is the firefighter. He has, we, we meet him in Felix and the Prince. I think there's reference to him in Facing West, just sort of, oh yeah, my brother Otto and Saint are in the military. But, but Otto's story is a childhood best friends story that was heavily inspired by Leslie Copeland, my beloved beta reader. Um, she heard a song that was about childhood best friends turned soulmates. And she said, you've got to write a story like this. So basically I'm writing it right now and I'm hoping to release it in mid-March, but I have learned not to make promises because you never know how the book is going to come out. I wrote Delivering Dante last year. It came out in early May and I wrote it and wasn't, I wrote the whole book, wasn't happy with it, tried to fix it, revised it, spent a lot of time on it, still wasn't happy with it, sent it to Leslie to beta read, had my sister read it. Both of them were like, yeah, it's fine. I'm like, yeah, it's fine thing. And started from scratch and wrote the whole thing again. So you never know when that's going to happen. And at the pace that we go with self-publishing, I mean, I published 10 books in my first year of publishing. And that is a, a, just a crazy pace. And so it, I can give you, you know, like I mid-March. I hope mid-March. If it goes well, if all goes well, mid-March. In another interview, also from 2018, we caught up with Lucy and audiobook narrator Michael Dean from GRL 2018. And in this segment, you'll hear why that particular event was so special for them. Meeting in real life for the first time, For the actually. first time. Really? This, yeah. this trip, yep. 
You guys have done so many books together. We've worked yeah. together for almost two years. I assume there's been at least Skype meetings. No. 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 We did talk no. on the phone once. Yeah. Yeah. But it's mostly, it's a lot of Facebook Messenger yeah. in the middle of the day, like, what's going on with this part? And, yeah. You know, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. Or about other things that have nothing to do with the books. <laughs> sure. So, I mean, that leads very nicely into how did the collaboration get going? Yeah, mm-hmm. audio is a is a big, big hot button for me. I love audio. I've always been a listener, and so I knew that if as soon as as soon as I put out books that could that were successful enough that I could justify doing audio, I would do it. So very quickly after Borrowing Blue did well enough. I wanted to get right into it. So I put it up on ACX for auditions and and asked a few of the narrators that I happen to know off the top of my head to send in auditions. And I get an audition from this guy with, that was unsolicited. But I knew I'd listened to an audio of his before, but I just did, hadn't remembered like right off the top. But I mean, he nailed the audition. And so then I was like, okay, do I hire the narrator who has the name that I went into this thinking, you know, yeah, this is like a dream narrator for me. Or do I hire the guy who actually nailed the audition? And so, I mean, I went back and forth with my family and everything. Which, by the way, is how the acting business works. Yeah. And sometimes it goes, like, to the person that nailed the audition, and sometimes it goes to the person that they just had in their head anyways, and they it's all over the place from everything, like movies, TVs. It's all... You just never know why casting happens, and it's always what the instinct decides to be. And there's no right or wrong to that. It just is... What happens? And we've done 17 projects so far together, and I still remember the exact scene that he read and the exact way it sounded in his audition and the exact like reaction. It just it it still brings a smile to my face because it, it, he just nailed it, nailed it. So what then, scene, what scene was it? So in Borrowing Blue, there's a scene where Blue comes running out of the vineyard, and why I can't. He comes running out of the rehearsal dinner that's in the barrel room. And then Tristan comes running out after him and Blue's like, thinks he's coming out for his dog. Piper's over here, she's fine, she's right here. He says, no, I wasn't coming after the dog, I was coming after you. And so it has Blue and it has Tristan and I think there's another character in the scene too. So that, and the reason I picked it is because it had several I different voices. Piper maybe was in Piper's the dog. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, Sloan. Oh, uh, S- Simone, 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 I'm sorry. Simone. Oh, that's so he was maybe... <laughs> this happens, Ginger like and the Pete, names yeah, go crazy. Ginger and Pete, I think, were the ones walking to the to the vineyard, to the, to the whatever, the place where the hotel rooms are. The yeah, lodge, there was the a, lodge. There was definitely a female character in that scene, too. That's why I, I okay. remember it to then be it was a female Ginger. character. It was probably yeah, Ginger. Yeah. But anyway, so I, and I mean, I, I listened to it over and over and over again. But then once we started working together on that, it just very quickly became, like, so easy, so right, so perfect for the combination of his voice acting and my words I couldn't really imagine other people doing it you know and and obviously just to stick with the same narrator for that series because those are all the same characters and he always and like in the thing now like he can he could read something in Blue's voice and like that's Blue's voice so he can you know I'm on book so it like there's eight now there's sort of nine Marion books and he still when he narrates Blue's voice is Blue's voice so it's really that's really impressive to me and so when it got to the point that I started going into the Forever Wild series, it, there was no doubt for me that I still wanted to use him for the narration because it was just so successful. And there was crossovers. Yeah, and it was a spinoff out. anyway because it was yeah. Nico's book. Yeah. But, but I did have some books planned that were going to have some accents. Mm-hmm. 
But because I know I want his narration, I would rather write the book differently so that he can narrate it than write it the way that I might normally want to write it. But then he might not be able to nail the narration. So, so that's actually why Charlie in, in Hudson's Luck is Irish instead of English. Because... I wanted him, like he does yeah, Irish. She asked what my strong suit was, yeah. and I was like, well, you're asking. Yeah. I could, do, I could do good Irish. I could do like five different Irish dialects. Yeah. I loved the Irish in that book, and yeah. she made you sing a little bit, too. <laughs> little which was yeah, oh, yeah that's right. That's right. But, yeah. yeah. But that's same with Felix and the Prince. So Felix and the Prince, how am I supposed to ask him to do, okay, well, here's this guy who's from Monaco, his mother's, you know, he's like a native French speaker and like all these variations. So I, ha I deliberately had Felix's mom be American just so that we had a little bit more leeway mm -hmm. to not have the accent work take over the narration so that the story still comes out. And it's not all about the accent. But then on the Hudson's, we definitely went in all about the accent. Yeah. How's it been for you getting involved in now two long running series, not even to mention the crossovers? With Sloan. Yeah. You know, it's there there's like there's both sides to it. On the one side, like a standalone book comes to you and you're just it's a clean slate, you can pull out anything you want to do, which has a challenge because you're creating you're you're creating an entire new vocal world. So that's a challenge. But there's also that complete liberation and freedom. Uh, so those are the, the, the pros and cons to a standalone. With a series, uh, you kind of just flip that, you know, so you've you've already after that first book you already have that common language that you've created for yourself, that vocal world, the same way that you're creating a universe mm -hmm. through, through the words, you're creating a universe through sound when you're doing the audios, yeah. and you need to be consistent with that throughout. So there is that sense of like, okay, well, I already know who all these characters are, so it takes some of that planning, that preparation work, well, we're picking up where we left off, so that makes it a little bit easier. But then it becomes harder because then you have to honor that. You yeah. have to have that yeah. consistency. Yeah. And the world just keeps growing. <laughs> and so, you know, you're sitting there, uh, you know, several books later and you're like, okay, if you had to remember all of these pieces, you know. And then as a, a narrator, I'm also bouncing around with different authors that I work with. So it might be, you know, I am in Lucy's world and then three months later is when I come back to it. And in the meantime, I've been in all these other worlds. I do... So I do some science fiction books where you're literally in different worlds, you know? So you're flying all over the place, and then you have to come back and make sure that you're consistent. And that's the big challenge there. So while some of the, the prep work is easier, it's that consistency that becomes the challenge in that case. You have all this information. Do you keep something handy to go, well, this is, this is how blues sounds, and this is blues... Well, I definitely go, I have all of the books, I have all the books I've narrated um, on storage hard drives, which they just keep building up. And, <laughs> so that's the challenge. I'm like, okay, hard drive number three has, you know. So I, as I go back in, before I start rec recording, there is that process of checking in, going back into, okay, how did this sound? And sometimes, you know, a lot of times with actors, like sometimes a character just lives in you and it's that's, effortless. Yeah, that's you know, so So sometimes, yeah. sometimes I just... Like, that's that guy. I know it. And then other times I'm like, who? Okay, where in my voice register did Teddy really live? I think I know, but I really need to, like, listen to hear it, you know? So it's it's um, different for different characters as well. Like, Aunt Tilly is just like, I don't have to look that up. It's just like, <laughs> it's, you know, it's right there. It just, blah, it comes out, you know? So you kind of mentioned Tilly there. Are there other ones that live in you that are just, like, 
boom. Blue usually uh, doesn't have to. I don't have to look him up. He sort of comes out really. Blue and Tristan, both of them, just sort of come right out. And also, they were the first in the series, mm -hmm. so I think that that's part of that too. Because yeah, it's just like boom, you nailed it. And then as you're building off of that, and actually, Nico, I never have to look up. Yeah, really. Nico just he just comes right out. Yeah, it's just like, <laughs> I super love easy. that. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's you know what? It's part of it too. Is it's personal favorites. Like, like I love yeah. that Nico sound. He's actually uh, based on a friend of mine. I never okay. told you this, but uh -huh. you know we do this too. But I have this friend, this guy that I used to work with, Richie Militech. and so Nico isn't as. Yeah, like this guy Richie was, but Richie was this guy that sort of talked like this guy's what's going on, you know? And I sort of like just softened that to make him uh, Nico, but it, so it like comes out really quickly. It's sort of like it really easy cool. to find. Yeah. Do you find that you hear Michael now when you write these characters because it's so ingrained? I do. Like when I'm writing, because when I'm writing, obviously he hasn't narrated it yet. They're new words with new characters. Well, some new characters. But I definitely anticipate how he's going to say things, and I tease him about this all the time, but I, I have been known to, to put certain phrases in books because I like the way he says it. But I, I, I do hear it in his voice, but also, like, I'm way more conscious now of writing, taking into consideration the narration than I used to be. So there are scenes where I want to put every single Marion in you know at the thanksgiving dinner table and then i'm like he's gonna kill me <laughs> so i'll be like okay they're all still at the table she gets, but she gets only to a few do, people she only gets to do that like once a year yeah exactly and i don't lose it <laughs> the second time in the year she does it i'm like <laughs> yeah that's when the facebook app opens up and yeah. i'm like what are you doing to me yeah exactly <laughs> every exactly. single person you've ever written is in this scene <laughs> yeah 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 and then you get the moment where there's the the lucy and sloan cross Mm -hmm. that happens I was there was a narrator panel earlier today and somebody asked the question of do you ever worry about characters even with different authors who sound the same and the answer they presented there was there are people who just sound the same mm -hmm. was that an issue as you were working between Sloan and Lucy's world where there were people who did sound too close to each other so one thing, and I actually have talked to other authors about this, because sometimes an author will come to me when we're doing the first 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 looks on a book, where I've recorded a little bit for them, and they'll say, you know, I really want it to sound like this or this, or sometimes they'll even say, like, can you make it sound like so-and-so from this other book? And I will say no, because <laughs> that's taken. That's like, you know, asking to use uh, the same cover, you know. Yeah. And one thing that I'll talk to them about is what I'm doing, you know, I have my schedule somewhat planned out so I know I know Lucy's writing this I know Sloan's writing this I know another author's coming to me with something and so I have an idea I mean I don't always know what the characters are going to be in some of these books but I have an idea sometimes and what I tell uh, some of the authors that I work with is not only am I plotting your book when I'm doing my prep but I'm plotting all of the things on my schedule within like a two or three month period and trying my best to make all the new characters that I'm creating live somewhere differently as best as I can mm -hmm. and sometimes they might sound similar, right? But what's happening for me when I'm performing internally is unique. And that in itself, even if you're talking about pitch, I mean, there's only so many, so many things you can do, pinch, tempo, rhythm. There's only so many ways you can change your voice. So on a, on a purely like sound frequency level, things may sound similarly, but my hope is that the internal work that I've done makes it different. Mm -hmm. And that's how I approach that. Mm -hmm. So I don't worry so much. 
I get an idea, like, I mean, how many times, how many different low voice, like, guys can you do, you know, like, there's only so many ways I can make my voice low. So what has to change after I find that place in my voice is what's here and what's here, you know, and that's, that's how I work with that. Is there a particular thing that is kind of your jam for a character? Like, I try and ask him that all the time. I'm like, well, if you could special order me to write anything that you would love to narrate, what would it be? So it's it's actually, it comes from the, the male-female books that I've done, is L.J. Shen's book, Sparrow, was like a South Boston, Southie, like Maki Maxa, like that sort of world. And it was sort of that dark mafia place. And so I really like, I live well in that where area. Natasha Knight, also male-female, male, she writes in that, that, that sort of place. So I really kind of like thrive when I get to sink into that and it's probably just sort of my like blue collar growing up in Chicago <laughs> like watching I, I grew up in an Italian neighborhood in Chicago I'm a little Italian so I think that that's where like sort of that mafia stuff comes out you know so like those kind of those those darker characters which Sloan writes yeah too, I was gonna you know. say you're not getting that she writes me. that <laughs> but the, but but I I mean I you just asked like a favorite thing that doesn't mean I don't love everything else right right right, right yeah and we're going to wrap this up with a conversation we had a year later at GRL 2019 for an interview that we actually aired on Big Gay Author Podcast, episode 18. Why do you write? Oh, gosh, why do I write? I love it. First of all, now I write because I love it. I'm a voracious reader, and sometimes I can't find the story that I want to read, and so sometimes I have to write it. But when I first started off writing... I read a couple of really good books that inspired me to start, and I wanted to see if I could do it. And I wanted to write fun bantery scenes, and I wanted to write schmoopy romantic scenes. And I, I, you know, I wanted to, I, yeah, I never thought I could do it. And now that I can, it's a little bit addictive, you know? Uh, once you start brainstorming stories, I mean, Leslie and I were talking about stories last night, and I was just waiting for her to say, but hold on a minute, you're in the middle of this book, you're supposed to be writing this book, and you're also writing these short stories, like, now you're telling me about this other idea. I'm like, yeah. And I, my mom's friends are always like, where does she come up with all these ideas? I'm like, that is never a problem for me. I, that, that's not a problem. So part of it is, like, you know, wanting to, to try out these ideas. I get the impression from talking to you that it's not only a creative outlet, but you enjoy all aspects of the creative process, mm -hmm. whether that's drafting or maybe editing or packaging a book up with a great cover and then the marketing and then getting the book out to readers and talking to them. Is that a safe, that, safe bet to um, say? Or? No, okay. that is not safe to say. Uh, first of all, you can take editing and throw it out the door first. I understand. Yeah. Okay. You can take revising and throw that one out the door next. <laughs> no, I, I love brainstorming. I love craft. I love craft. I love learning how to do that better or learning why something works well. Mm -hmm. I love coming up with the hook and thinking about what the dark night of the soul is going to be and what the happy ever after is going to look like. I love writing comedy. There are a lot of aspects to the craft I love. And I, I enjoy the people. So I enjoy being on Facebook with the readers. I enjoy being on Facebook with other authors. I enjoy all of that interaction because that that fills my social side of my life and my heart, and I feel like I'm with my people in this community socially. But I don't like all of the admin stuff because a lot of it, when you're indie, a lot of it requires you figuring out, I mentioned this earlier, but you figuring it out on your own. So it requires a lot of self-education. And when you're trying to self-educate on how to market audio, let's say, 
that's not what I want to be spending my time. I love audio, but I want to be listening to it. (laughs) I want to be writing for it. I even want to be talking to Michael Polly about it. But I don't want to be studying how to market it or worse yet, troubleshooting it by trying things that fail because not a lot of us know how to market audio very well. So in that respect, I would say there's a lot of admin stuff that I don't like to do. One of the reasons I have good assistants in, in Leslie, but marketing is definitely not my favorite. Finding good cover images, even though I love the way they turn out, they turn out the way they turn out because I'm an absolute picky jackass <laughs> about it. You can ask any cover designer who's ever worked with me. Like I'm super, super, super picky and it's not over until I'm thrilled with it and think it's going to sell like hotcakes. And so I don't like feeling like I'm bothering somebody, but I'm going to keep bothering them until I get it right or until, you know, us together gets it right. But it, that can be contentious because you can go back and forth and back and forth well beyond where a cover designer thinks this needed to stop, you know, this needed to stop a long time ago. So yeah, there are definitely parts of it that I love and parts of it that I don't love, but the people part of it I love. This week's interview transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the author interview for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at biggayfictionpodcast.com. And thanks so much to Lucy for so many good books over the years of this podcast and for sitting down and talking with us so often as well. We very much appreciate it. Now, if you'd like the opportunity to suggest a guest to become a future listener favorite, all of the details are at biggayfictionpodcast.com slash favorites. You can recommend your favorites there and we just might pick them for a future favorite episode. All right, I think that'll do it for this week's show. Now, coming up next in episode 258, we're joined by John Morgan Wilson to celebrate the 25th anniversary re-release of the classic Simple Justice. It was really amazing to talk to John. He wrote so many acclaimed books in the Justice series, and now Requeered Tales is bringing those back out for the first time in several years. We talk all about what it was like for him to revisit them, to revise them, and get them ready to go in these brand new re-releases. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode and have discovered some new books to add to your TBR pile. And if not, we'll be back again next week with more recommendations and author interviews. So until then, stay strong, be safe, and above all else, keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. New episodes of this show are available every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. You can help support this show with a monthly pledge through Patreon. For more information about joining our community and the bonus content we deliver, check out patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. I'm Kurt Graves. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.